2: Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigny, and I would just like to say that I recognize that it's been a very, very hard period of time, especially for some people in some parts of the world, but I just want to let you know that there is one piece of unadulterated good news. Kane Tanaka is 117 years old, 270 days, and still playing Othello. And one one box of chocolates heavier. And still inclined to eat chocolate, and so if a woman named Kane Tanaka can eat chocolates and play Othello at 117 in 270 days, surely that is one good thing in the world. Life is good. So, we are going to be talking about the games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter, and our feature game, which is Flotilla. So, games we played last week, I would like to start...
1: Let's start with the... We're going to start with the big one? You're going to start... I'm going to start with the big one. Here's
2: the thing. We've had Poetry Corner here on So Very Wrong About Games twice, and now we're going to take a little detour into tragedy. This is a tragedy in two acts, Walker. The Dramatis Personae consists of me, your loyal co-host and friend, Dr. Contra, and let me just call this, per- this last person the Terrorist. This Terrorist brought Monopoly into my home and insisted we play it. This Terrorist is an eight-year-old boy. And people wonder, Mark, do you like children? And the answer to this is complicated, all right? Here's the here's the thing, and l- let me let me just be perfectly and it frank. changes, right? It changes, it changes on the child.
1: Like now, it's it's a little bit less.
2: <laughs> it changes <laughs> on the child, and it depends on how recently one of them has made me play Monopoly. My beef isn't actually with Monopoly because one thing to this child's credit, we played Monopoly by the actual rules, i.e., with auctions. And that expedites the game considerably, and it mitigates somewhat the degree of luck involved. It's still a very luck-based game, of course, and no free parking nonsense. And also, to this child's credit, just to give full credit where credit is due, there are some new community chest and chance cards that have been introduced in recent editions where you take a whole bunch of $100 bills and throw them up in the air, and there's a process by which you try to grab some. before the Anything you grab before it hits the ground, I think, whoever grabs it. Anyway. Are you kidding? Are you no, I'm kidding? serious. I'm serious. And these cards are so obviously terrible and bad that this child, when looking at them, says, no, no, no we don't play with these cards. And I was already riding this kid pretty bad for playing fast and loose because kids love to cheat. Well, I, there, I said it. Kids cheat. They're little cheaters. Like, for example, just as an example of what I had to deal with, because I want people to understand that I'm not a hateful person by nature. I become hateful in response to certain stimuli. We said to the child, all right, child, you can take the first turn. And he's like, all right, I will take the first turn. Rolls the dice and see that this lands him on income tax, where he'd have to pay $200. That's a change in the new edition, actually. You just pay 200 bucks. It's not or 10% of your net worth, which is fine. That was a strange calculation and a strange artifact in the game. But then he's like, oh, no, no, wait, I remember. We roll to see who goes first. This is my roll to see who goes first. And I'm like, this is nonsense. And I look over at Dr. Contra, and I'm like, is this what we're doing? Is this really what we're doing? And Dr. Contra's like, yeah, yeah, this is what we're doing. To his credit, that's some pretty fast thinking right there. That's some pretty slick stuff. Well, that's just it. My problem with children is not their reduced intellectual capability. I don't mind dealing with people who are dimwitted or slow. And most children in comparison to adults are dimwitted or slow. That's all right. I'm okay with that. I'm an educator. I know how to be patient and all that. It's, it's, it's the willingness to cheat. It's the fact that culturally we're expected to allow them to cheat, which I, I mm, rubs me the wrong way. And the worst part was how ungracious children can be. Sore winners, sore losers. They taunt. And they don't trash talk with respect for the art. There's an art to trash talk, Walker. You do it with your friends. You feel out when it's appropriate. You don't do it with strangers. And you don't do it when you're winning.
1: And they have layers,
2: Mark. Yeah. Trash talk has layers. There's a nuance to trash talk. that is totally lost on your average eight-year-old. That's true. There was a point where an auction was going on that he was out of, and Dr. Contra and I were, were, were auctioning, where he started doing a little dance in his chair and a little song about how make him spend more money, make him spend more money. After I won the auction, I had to leave the table so I didn't start saying something that I might regret. Because I am actually friends with this child's parents. Anyhow. Did I beat this child mercilessly? Yes. (laughs) Did I enjoy and savor it when Dr. Contra exerted a trait on him that could best be described as ruthlessly exploitive? Yes. Do I feel bad about it? No. Because that at least ended the affair. So here's what I have to say about Monopoly. Played by the actual rules, and played by people of good humor and willingness to cut deals when appropriate, and when willing to concede where appropriate, it's not the worst thing in the world. You could do a lot better, but you could also do a lot worse, especially in the mass market
1: category. Man, I've got our next game fits that same genre exactly to a T, Mark.
2: I feel like I could go on for a substantial proportion more, but mostly it would be complaining about ungenerous, uncharitable, bad winner, bad losers. Honestly, bad winners are the the some of my least favorite people in the world, and they ruin the hobby for me. And this, this person, this child, came into my home and defiled it. <gasps> Terrible. And that was my experience with Monopoly. Well, this is how they learn, Mark. Well, no, that's just it. I can't... It's an awkward situation. Thank, well, thank you for, for, for provoking me again. I'm not the child's parent. And I know for a fact that I'm not going to be able to present a unified front because all the other adults are, are have different attitudes towards dealing with children. How to deal with a, a non-relative child in a context of babysitting environments is a tricky, delicate thing. And I just didn't feel comfortable going from playing a game to solid discipline or correction.
1: Well, maybe the next time it won't be so bad. Maybe they'll, they'll, you'll be a shining example and maybe he'll he'll try to play with dignity and honesty. I'm not – look, I'm not expecting dignity necessarily.
2: <laughs> honesty then. A little bit of restraint would go a long way. That's honestly – and yes, I know asking for a, straight from, a restraint from, from young children is perhaps unreasonable. But look, this is my hobby time, Walker. Well, That's actually, right. it wasn't hobby time. I was doing a favor for someone else by, by occupying this this little monster. But anyway, that ba- was... Babysitting duty. That was Monopoly.
1: Like I said, a game that fits well into that. If people played by the rules and everyone knows going in, Pendulum we got to play. Another big <laughs> Stonemaier release by Travis P. Jones. It's his first design. And Pendulum is a game that uses timers when they work. Sand timers. If not, you get to use your telephone or other sort of electric timer to replace the timers that don't work. Usually when you make a game based on timers, you'd want to put in timers that worked. Oh, you think? I would feel that this would be a necessary step. Look, it's unreasonable to expect StoneWire to
2: include functional components in their games. Come on. uh, that That's uh, apparently true.
1: Uh, You can't (laughs) really argue the facts. Anyway, so... It is worker placement. You can place your worker when there's no timers present, so you move your workers around where there are no timers, and they sort of in groups of actions, and then when the timers get flipped, those workers are now locked in place, and you get to do those actions as you see fit until the sand timers are moved again that release those workers. It's what I call busy work game. I've talked about mm-hmm. it in the past, where it's a whole bunch of busywork games like Splendor or Century Road, where you're pushing cubes back and forth all the time.
2: Well, specifically what I think you mean, just for a little bit of, of elimination, because you really made it clear to me after we played Pendulum for the first time. For you, busy work is a game where it's all about conversion. I take X of this resource to get Y of this resource to get Z of this resource, and then at the end points. Correct. What, it's what I
1: call a cube pusher. Cube pusher. It's what it is, and it has a very interesting take on it. The timers are very interesting when they work. I thought it was a very interesting mechanism. Even the rulebook says itself is that you're never going to get a clean game of Pendulum where someone doesn't place a worker where they're not supposed to or something goes wrong, just sort of flow with it, which is fine. I don't think it's a game I'll ever choose to play. What did you think of it, Mark? Pendulum, I think, is by far my favorite Stonemaier game
2: since Scythe, but that isn't saying a whole heck of a lot. I've found Stonemeyer's output to be aggressively mediocre in the kind of generic worker placement bordering on cube pusher nonsense with some other things slapped in that I find generally forgettable or actively obnoxious. The epitome of this to me is things like Charterstone and Euphoria, which of course, they haven't published a whole bunch of games, but Euphoria is a generic worker placement game where if you roll a six, you get to place two workers in a row, and Charterstone was just... Utterly banal cube pushing. I get this pumpkin. I then turn this pumpkin into two points. I get this thing. I turn this anywhere. What Pendulum does is it manages to leverage the timers to give you the sense of engagement that cube pushers for me normally don't have. There are ways around this. So in Kalis 1303, for example, which can at times degenerate into cube pushing, it's at least vicious enough, and the competition is pointed enough that you have to pay enough attention to what everyone else is doing, and you get that sense of engagement, you get that sense of commitment that will be that absent from such a, a, norm, a boring exercise. Same thing with sidereal confluence. In sidereal confluence, there's a the bit of the time pressure simply because the market is constantly evolving, and you need to get at, at the resources you need before someone else trades for them, and the human interaction provides that necessary necessary bit of impetus pendulum gives you that level of engagement by virtue of the time pressure which i have to say is calibrated almost perfectly it's never frenetic it's not like space alert where you feel like you have 10 seconds to do something crucial or everything is going to blow up usually it's more a function of okay i've got to make this decision and i have enough time to make it but i know i can't dawdle which is what they were going for. In, in reading the rule book, they, 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 they definitely tried to set the stage for why the time pressure existed and what kind of time pressure they wanted. And I think they succeeded admirably in that. It's also not as frenetic as, say, Galaxy Trucker, to just name two excellent time pressure-based games. It reminds me a little bit more of the time pressure introduced in Space Dealer or the, the re-implementation Time in Space, where you're practically never just sitting around waiting for timers to elapse, but by the same time, you never feel like you're actively involved in some sort of high stakes pressured race
1: and they sort of double down on that because there's like this one resource that you have to get for the game you only need one of it to get it and we as we found in our first game there's only so many chances so if no one gets in the first round then guess what someone's not winning the game they're just out and then it just gets worse from there it's very interesting mechanics it like doubles down on this pressure mechanic I wish that had been a little bit more. See, the problem is they they couldn't lean on that too much without making it feel a little bit
2: arbitrary or making it a, a feel a little bit unfair because the resource in question to win, the victory point to win can be earned more easily based on the random goals that you have for the given round. A goal for the next round might come up and someone look down at the board and say, oh, I have most of these already. This is going to be trivial for me to get. Now, to a certain extent, that means that if you need that point, you should be saving things from round to round, so you have a little bit more flexibility, but nonetheless, I wish that it had been a little bit more pointed in that because something strange happened both times we played. Both times we played, several people were very close to maxing out all their victory point tracks. Which I think is unfortunate. I think that shows that the economy wasn't calibrated terribly well. Now, maybe this is because just as a group, we didn't expedite the rounds fast enough. We let the, the rounds last too long because it's to a certain extent reactive to how people play. I,
1: I don't think that is the case because that's the particular timer that was broken and it was down to a phone timer and pretty well every time the alarm went off, it was flipped. There's not a, much a good of a point. time that we let that timer go.
2: Not in the first round though. In the first round, people were very gun shy about the extended spaces. There's a whole bunch of dynamics about when you commit to the more time consuming action spaces and when you just rely on, on the shorter ones. It's the kind of thing that I'd want to see through multiple plays. I have my concerns. And I have my suspicions about where it's coming from, but Pendulum suffers from a lot of the standard flaws that you're going to find in contemporary Euro games of this weight. It is utterly themeless. The player interaction is negligible, but at least in terms of the latter part, the timer element serves to obviate that. You don't really care that there's not a whole lot of player interaction because at the very least, you're never waiting for anyone's turn. So the downtime is negligible, and there is competition for that crucial victory point, so that kind of makes you feel like you're in a little bit of a race with everybody else. And there are some nice little touches. The way strategy cards are used, everyone has their own unique hand of cards, and you play them to get a Benny, and you pay a a rather expensive resource usually to get them all back, and there's some cycling there, and you can get new ones. Look, there's nothing earth-shattering about Pendulum. The action spaces are all incredibly dull and very straightforward. Spend two yellow cubes to get two red cubes, stuff like that. But I thoroughly enjoyed it, honestly. And I enjoyed it far, far more than I thought I would. Do I think there's a whole lot of replayability here? Probably not. I've only played it the two times. I would happily play it some more. I might even suggest it one or two more times. But one thing, for example, that makes me cautious about recommending it is I don't think I'd want to play the same character again. Certainly not very Quickly, there's a little bit of asymmetry in the different character boards. They have different strategy cards, for example. They have different. Uh, sorry, I should I should be on I should be faithful to the theme. Stratagem cards. Oh. Well, they have stratagem cards and they have grande workers. I think we're supposed to say grand, but I'm going to say grande because that's my prerogative. Damn it! They should put a, a
1: Starbucks theme on it. It would have been
2: great. Yeah, you can have grande workers and venti workers and the whole thing. It that would been it been would fantastic. definitely work out.
1: Yeah, so it's a generic cube pusher made slightly more engaging by virtue of a straightforward timer app. Yeah, it keeps you engaged the whole time, but sometimes you just want to sit back and relax and get that crunchiness some other way instead of you know, having to be engaged constantly all the time.
2: Oh, definitely, without a doubt. And people who don't like real-time games are still not going to like it. Some people had uh, very, very violent antipathetic reactions to it by virtue of the time pressure or just by virtue of the timer element. It is unfortunate that a game of the simplicity does seem rife with errors. The rulebook's right. It's really hard to play a game where nobody commits an error, even though it's simple. it, It seems to... The same errors seem keep cropping up. And... As I say, the action spaces are terribly, terribly bland. So I agree with you entirely. Without without the time pressure, it would be thoroughly unremarkable and not worth your time. And it's not the kind of thing you want to do every day. And even if you want to do cube pushers, I would much rather do something like KLS 1303 or something like Sidereal Confluence. And indeed, Sidereal Confluence is has the time pressure as well. And it has more asymmetry and has all those other things. So in some ways, Pendulum is kind of like Sidereal Confluence Jr. just without the trading. I was not expecting to like it at all. And I enjoyed it a fair bit. So I have to say that this is one of my more surprising experiences of the past few months. And I don't understand why it's getting so much vitriol. The problem of being a Stonemaier release is everyone is going to talk about it in the context of being a Stonemaier release. To a certain extent, that's the kind of bed that Jamie Stegmaier has made for himself. But... There's a lot of very negative reaction to Pendulum, and quite frankly, I don't know why. I remember when Tapestry first came out, and we were crapping all over. People were like, no, 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 it's fine, and then it took a few months for the... I'm not saying that we moved to the market, but it took a few months for the market to be like, yeah, actually, Tapestry's got some serious problems. But here, for me personally, it's quite the opposite. I'm like, Pendulum's not bad, and everyone's like, Pendulum's the
1: worst. Maybe they just wanted more, and it's, like we said, it's awfully light.
2: Why would they expect more from I know, like after
1: Wingspan, yeah. Yeah, they produce
2: mid-light Euros. That's what they do, and they make them pretty, and sometimes they have some kind of perceptible theme and sometimes not, and sometimes the theme is at odds with what's going on visually. Maybe maybe it's just because I'm so jaded about Stonemeyer that I enjoyed <laughs> Pendulum. So I don't know. Although I am dubious about the potential for replay, I'll probably play it another couple times. That was Pendulum by Stonemeyer Games. You get to play another couple rounds of The Crew, the quest for Planet 9 remains a crowd pleaser. Although our last session really emphasized something that I think is underreported about The Crew, which is how very susceptible it is to player count. And even the rulebook acknowledges that with five players, which is how we played, some missions are going to be very, very, very hard. However, we also played, we played two missions back to back, one of which was borderline trivial because we were playing with five. And the next one is, I'm not going to say next to unwinnable. That's a gross exaggeration, but very tough.
1: Definitely felt that way.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, when one of the five players is me, and based on how some of the drafts went, yeah, the hands might or might not have been winnable after the draft. I'm not willing to blame the game. We love the crew of the Quest for Planet 9, but you probably want to play it with three or four, if at all possible. But I'd I'd still happily play it with five, even knowing that a lot of the missions are going to be wackadoodle.
1: We finally finished My City by Reiner Knizia, put out by Cosmos Games. It was 24 games of a nice, light, polydomino, sort of Tetrisy city-building, mutating, advancing, changing, sticker-placing, legacy-type adventure, Mark. It was... Very enjoyable. So we've commented before
2: about the churn, about the pressures of playing lots of games just as a hobbyist, independently of having a podcast, just the number of games you go through. And we should just emphasize that. Over the course of a few weeks, we played My City 24 times. And not because we thought we were going to review it. In point of fact, because it is a legacy game with spoilers aplenty, we know we probably won't ever do a full in-depth review of My City. Despite the high competition for two-player games, when it was just the two of us, we were like, let's do three more games of My City. And we did so gladly. It was not a death march. We did so happily, and for what it's worth, I am looking forward to trying the eternal version, which is the, you're done with the campaign, and now you can play with uh, the boards forever.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm looking forward to that. With more players, I'm wondering if it, I can't say it really changed anything, but just seeing how other people react to the game, I guess, is what I'm talking about. That would be reasonable. I would be curious to see how other people react. I still want
2: to see how people who are fond of role and rights, who really, really dig cartographers, because to me, my city is cartographers done right without the silliness of the of, of the weird pass-to-the-left kind of faux-player interaction, without the weird sort of, oh, I forgot that shape was in the mix kind of deal. My City is how you do it right, I think. And yeah, I, I look, I thoroughly r- recommend My City. I really liked some of the flourishes of the campaign. Player interaction was never much of a thing, but for a light tile air, I thought it was great. And that was My
1: City, Reiner Knizia, Cosmos Games.
2: So now the good news of the tragedy in two acts a bit of redemption, because I had come prepared for this eight-year-old walker. I had gone through my collection, and I thought, you know, what's what's good for an eight-year-old? My immediate thought was co-op dexterity games, right? Co-op games, cheating doesn't bother me. I could help the child if the child wants to be helped. If if child's like, I don't really want to have that restriction, or they want to play ahead having ignored a rule, that's fine. I'm willing to hand my way w- all those things. And so I set up a number of games that would be suitable to play with an eight-year-old, I thought, that... and heavily slanted towards co-op dexterity games and while we were playing monopoly because we played monopoly because child showed up with monopoly saying this is what we are playing now it's like all right fine and then i was able to tempt the child with flick him up dead of winter which sure enough has a very appealing box and 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 lots of cartoony art and then we played flick him up dead of winter and that was great and then i had no problems with child i I let child take most of the turns i did only about 10 percent of the flicking and that's fine Played a kind of simplified version of the first scenario without uh, having to belabor too many of the rules because, generally speaking, it, this isn't even a question about intellect. It's more a question of attention span. You know, you don't want to spend a lot of time setting up a scenario and like, okay, before we play with any of this stuff, you need to memorize them. And Child observed very correctly that the game is very hard. Didn't even get frustrated when so many of their movements got interrupted because one of the obnoxious things about Flicking Up Dead of Winter is if you, when you're moving your character, if you flick the disc and you hit anything... It's not that something cool happens, nothing happens. The character just stays where they are, which is one of the features that I don't up- uh, approve of. I think failure should lead to interesting things rather than stagnation, which is somewhat unfortunate. I even listened carefully as the Child suggested various improvements to the game, mostly involved in involving dice. I think I'm of the impression that Child thinks that dice are just a necessary feature of all games. He's a fan of Monopoly, what can you say? But I really, really liked Flick'em Up Dead of Winter. It worked really well. It was very child-friendly. It's cartoony, so it's hard to take the violence too seriously. And everyone is basically familiar with the contours of Zombie Apocalypse, even if they're that young. (laughs) And my intuition that co-op dexterity games were the way to go was absolutely correct. And the toy factor is real. And so that's definitely appealing. So I had a great time playing Flick'em Up Dead of Winter.
1: Speaking of toy factor, Merc, Cthulhu Wars, giant toys, huge plastic. Cthulhu Wars by Sandy Peterson and Lincoln Peterson by uh, Peterson Games that put out games by...
2: Yeah, it's Peterson, Peterson, Peterson gig, yeah.
1: It's a very quick game, work I'm wondering if Cthulhu Wars is not so good for newer players because they just sort of get a hold of what's going on and then the game's over.
2: Well, there is a skill ceiling and... We played online, we played with the Tabletop Simulator mod, and that emphasizes the alienation because there you have to see how many spellbooks people have, that gives you a sense of the game length or the game clock, it's harder to internalize what other people's special abilities are, but again, that could just be me, because I find everything harder to internalize when done in a a digital context. I agree with you, though, Uh, Cthulhu Wars, at its worst, can have precipitous endings, and especially based on how often people do what's called a Ritual of Annihilation, that's one of the end states. And so you can have people ending very, very short of the nominal victory point goal, which is kind of sort of 30. And in our game, nobody cracked 30. The game ended sooner than that. But that, again, is 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 a function of players' choices. And broadly speaking, you can end up in a trap whereby you don't want to do a Ritual of Annihilation because that will expedite the game. But by the same token, you have to do the Ritual of Annihilation because you need the points, because you're behind. Anyhow... But I still really enjoy the fact that you get all this wildness and wackiness and interesting special powers in that tight, compelling package. And given that it's largely a function of, are you willing to go smack the leader upside the head so as to delay them from scoring... If you're not willing to, well, the game's going to end soon. So it's not like you're then stuck for turn after turn after turn of compound it's interest.
1: It's true, but that sort of—I think that sort of leads into it. So if you have people that are new to it, they might be hitting the wrong person. You know what I mean? Like,
2: well, generally speaking, it's whoever has the most gates. That's that's a, yeah. usually a pretty good proxy. Like, if you're sitting on four gates and everyone else is sitting on two or three. Yeah, you know who you need to go after. I, I agree with you, though. It is There are a number of things that make Cthulhu Wars relatively unfriendly for new players, especially with the discrepancy of skill sets. And once you start mixing in a whole bunch of new factions and new rules that people might not be familiar with, that exacerbates the thing. I still enjoy it, even when there's strange, aberrant result. Because, as you say, it's relatively quick. It's hard to, to feel too bad about a route when you still get to have all those cool toys and it's over relatively quickly.
1: It's true. And that was Cthulhu Wars by Sandy Peterson. Got to play
2: another Euro tile layer, this is called Pandoria. Pandoria was recommended to us by a listener. It was designed by Jeffrey Allers and Bernd Eisenstein. And Pandoria is an interesting game of surrounding territories and scoring blocks of like icons. It has lots of player interaction because it's a uh, because there are lots of ways to force opponents' workers off the board so they can't score. So you have to set up these groups while carefully be making sure that you have a way out. It's very spatial in nature. And I found it very challenging on that basis. I would frequently place a tile or place a worker, and then realize next turn, wait a minute, the shapes just do not work properly. I can't. Well, actually, I I had the same experience very often in my city. I'd put out a tile in my city, and then realize, wait a minute, the shape that I then want to fill does not exist or doesn't rotate the proper way. Despite that, I found it very, very cool. It has multi-use cards that can either be buildings or spells, and that interact intersects with the three different kinds of currency. Sometimes you want the currency for currency, and sometimes you're deliberately over. Scoring currency to score points, which is neat. Very often in games like this, you know, excess currency into points is kind of an afterthought or just endgame scoring. Here it's built into Pandoria. You're, You're limited to 10 of a given thing. And so then if you score a region worth 21 gold, you know you're doing that largely for points, which was very neat. I liked how that worked. And there are a lot of special powers from asymmetric factions. I printed out a whole bunch of other ones on the internet, so I'm, I'm keen to try some of those. I'm very interested to play
1: more. What did you think of Pandora Walker? I loved it. I played it a long time ago. It's a very inoffensive tile layer. It's nice, dead simple. You know, it's lockdown rules, you know what I mean? So it's not as though, you know going to be looking stuff up and fiddling back and forth. You play your tiles, much like Carcassonne or or Indigo, where you don't have a hand of cards. You're drawing from top decking, I guess you could say. So you're just placing the one tile, and it's the next person's turn, and it's got those Like you already talked about, very interesting cards where you can cast spells, improve your generation. And it's sort of like that's the way you do score points is like trying to max out certain resources.
2: Well, we were talking about the one tile hand in Indigo, and I commented that there was an an official
1: variant whereby you have two
2: tiles. And you commented that you think that that would not improve the game. And it's strange because I think I agree with you, despite the fact that in Carcassonne, for example, I very much approve of having more tiles. But in Pandoria and Indigo, I quite like that you only have one tile available for you. And I'm a little hard-pressed to explain why, and I was wondering if you had more substantive thoughts on the matter.
1: Well, in Pandoria, I think it's definitely a major part of the game because of those cards the the spell cards for like teleporting and moving your guys around I think that's the main part of the game is to help you when you don't have the tiles you need is to move your stuff around if you, if you also had a hand then a lot of those spells and mechanisms would be useless that's probably true I don't but, know if I'd say useless but uh, I, I hear it, what you're saying less useful and just just the same thing with Inigo if you had like a choice it would just it would make the it would expedite the end of the game or or mm. ramp the points up even faster, you know what I mean because it would just give you more ideal plays, you know what I
2: mean, which in turn I think in the case of indigo would minimize the interesting player dynamics if you could always send the gems or if you had a greater control of where the gems were going, you'd have less reason to
1: collude with people on a case by case basis. You've convinced me and yeah, and there'd be sorry it was sort of like two different ga- games like in uh, indigo, you can play tiles to sort of get onto two fronts. Only because those are the tiles you had, so you got interesting things going, whereas if you had a hand, then you're you know, what I mean, it would just it would lead you down a more narrow tunnel. I hear you.
2: And so that was Pandoria. I hope to be able to
1: play it again soon. More on Pandoria, hopefully, to follow. And finally, for me, Mark has already talked about it many times, everything he said is true. For what remains is a fantastic game. It's a nice little skirmish game where you're using chits of warriors to face off against each other, jumping on top of containers and raining down fire and blowing up, you know, mechs. And it's nice and clean. Everything about it I love. Well, you had some comments about the Chitpul activation system. Well, yeah, that was just, just the fiddliness of one of the... But the the mechanism excel, itself is I approve of. It's just how it's dealt with. It's just the bag was kind of small. And, and I always feel bad when it's a random order of units, when a random, you know, and it just happens, you're the one that's pulling the chits out of the bag, and it just runs so perfectly for you, it just gives (laughs) me this feeling of guilt that, it's like, oh, look, the exact chits I needed, I just pulled out of the bag, how convenient.
2: You wouldn't happen to be referring to the sniper, sniper, sniper poll, would you? I, not at all. Uh, Yeah. Well, next time I can pull the chits from the bag, and I can deal with the too small bag, I can accept the karmic responsibility of doling out the random results. (laughs) Yes, Random... I wish they were. I thoroughly enjoyed our playing. I have to say that playing it Versus wasn't revelatory because I was already sold on the system and I was already sold on how nice and clean the AI is. I'm not in any way denigrating the experience of playing with Walker. And I don't know whether I'd prefer playing it solo or Versus, but I will say of the available skirmishy type games, it has the best solo system I've ever encountered. So by default, it probably will see more play in that setup, whereas there are a number of versus skirmish games that I, I, I quite appreciate, which is not to say that I'll never play it uh, face-to-face. Again, that's one of the reasons why I like the solo system. The solo version feels like uh, a versus version, even though there's no human driving things. And so that, I think, is further high praise for the solo system for For What Remains.
1: And I enjoyed it face-to-face as well. It's, yeah, it's done by the same designer that does Undaunted, and both systems are so clean, it makes the game fun to play. Yeah, this David, this David Thompson cat, I tell you. He knows what he's doing.
2: And just as a, a weird disclosure, we did not play on a review copy, even though we have a review copy for What Remains. We played on the version that I purchased, which had other factions <laughs> that I was inspired to purchase by virtue of having had a review copy with other factions. Make of that what you will. <laughs> and that was For What Remains. And that
1: are the games we played that. That? Those... Those, all of those. Those be? Those those be the games we played Dendard Dare last week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to start it off with Hero quest 2, Nostalgic Boogaloo. <laughs> all right. So Hasbro
2: is... Marketing, hire this man. Here we go. All right, so. I have a different subtitle was... for Hero Quest
1: 2, though. Do you? Which is, Quebec? Where's that? Quebec, where's that? We'll get on to that in a moment. So here we go. Hasbro Collectors. It was a website that started in the late '80s. Then it turned into Hasbro Toy Shop in 2005, and then on the Hasbro Collector site, they had a they had a um, a news thing that was called Pulse, and now they've turned Pulse into an actual website that has replaced the Hasbro toy store. They also had something that was called Has Labs. Haslabs and the Hasbro store merged together, and Pulse is now the name of the Hasbro store.
2: Did Haslabs produce Hazmat?
1: No. Okay. It produced things that are famously known as the giant, not two-scale, but two, normal Star Wars action figure scale, two-scale Jabba's floating barge. Oh. So huge crowdfunding things like this. So Hasbro, the multi-billion dollar company, needs its own uh, sort of... (laughs) Kickstarter type thing. And like we said, Hero Quest will not be being shipped to Quebec. And we sort of talked about this, we probably pretty well agree that it's probably because here in Canada, Quebec has certain laws that anything that is sold there must be bilingual, so must have French on the cover, and a French rule book. So we just feel that more than likely Hasbro does not feel like making a French version and therefore will not ship to Quebec.
2: And to be frank it seems clear that they didn't really spend much time thinking about Canada at all by virtue of the fact that when they originally set up the campaign for HeroQuest the shipping to Canada was shall we say extortionate. They have since lowered it to expensive but
1: within reason. Well the, from the digging that I did they have they have no international shipping whatsoever so it's only to, to North America places like that so let me just say, I, I want to say, thank Bobby Skullface for most, if not all of this information. Also, just like Amazon Prime, Pulse also has a premium membership. So you can pay fifty dollars a year to be a a special a premium customer of this they'll get you special things. It also has, is having problems with, uh, exclusives. Apparently, you know, if, if you pay $50 a year to be part of this Hasbro thing, you think you're going to get access to all the exclusives, but they also have Target exclusives and Walmart exclusives. And mm. people are, I don't want to get too much into the, it's mostly the problems come up with the, the Star Wars miniatures. There's all sorts of collectors, G.I. Joe collectors. Anyway, the miniatures and the toys, huge thing. But now, now, our hobby is involved, Mark. they yes. out this, this board game, and so we have to talk about it.
2: <laughs> I don't know if we have to.
1: So it's $99 for just the base version. Sorry, $99.99, 99 You know, because <laughs> this is definitely a Hasbro product. And, or if you want the premium deluxe super edition, it will be $149.99. So I visited Hasbro Pulse just to see what the, the whole hoopla was about. And I have to say that the concept of
2: it as a website seems legitimate. Like, when I first heard about it, it it's like, Hasbro has a crowdfunding platform. That seems ridiculous. But when you see what it's for, it's for the high-end collector who wants, you know, the $200 bust of something of one of Hasbro's many IPs that they're not going to ship to Toys R Us. And so that that immediately made sense to me. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. And then I started looking at HeroQuest stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember the stuff from commercials from the 80s. Because I never had request, and at the time, the notion of having a little plastic figure called the Barbarian and rolling a d6 to see if I could kill an orc seemed like the coolest thing ever. Now, not so much. And sure enough, to their credit, they're most, they're, you know, they're reproducing HeroQuest. They're not reinventing the wheel. Simon does that on a regular basis and half a dozen other publishers have done that on a regular basis. I just got to repeat, I have no interest in this product. All right. So Pulse doesn't
1: only deal with uh, crowdfunding. Type You're not things. done, are you? No. Oh, oh no, no, wow. No, no, we're going to, we're going to go deep. Tell you what. This. Tell you what. I'm going to, I'm going to sit back. We'll <laughs> try to make this very brief. So they're not just crowdfunding. It's a store where you can just buy stuff. So. Not only are they bypassing Kickstarter, right? Kickstarter is another company. They make money. They employ lots of people. But like our my sorry to say like our like my complaints about Kickstarter. Now they are also buying uh, bypassing the distributors, so no di- distributors are making any money. They bypass all the brick and mortars, so none of our local stores are making any money. One hundred percent of all the funds are going to Hasbro, and it doesn't seem I don't, like I don't want to say. I don't want to quote on the prices, but these are normal retail prices going directly to the store. Eh.
2: Insofar as publishers and producers of products are able to cut out middlemen as much as possible and sell direct to the consumer, they are going to do so. And so I'm not willing to ascribe any particular kind of misfortune or tragedy to this particular development.
1: Well, yeah, I don't have a problem with it if, that, if that's the way across the board. But other publishers of games have to sell products at 40% off the price so the distributors can sell it to the brick and mortars at a certain discount so they can sell it to the customers. You know what I mean? So
2: no, you look, you don't have to
1: explain to me how distribution chains work, but the thing is, is that your average Kickstarter
2: release, for example, the only person who's being cut out in this Hasbro pulse model are Kickstarter who charge a fee for just basically providing marketing and, a, and, a, and an established platform, and some fulfillment company who are
1: basically middlemen. I agree and- with you 100%, but the majority of Kickstarters aren't billion-dollar companies. Sure, but this is a highly niche
2: product and they can't shovel this out. In many ways, it's beneath Hasbro's contempt. They're not going to get out of bed for less than, you know, a huge number of units that they can move. So the fact they're doing this at all, it's like when Riot put out Mechs vs. Minions. You know, this was a very, very niche product, and it probably lost them a ton of money, especially when you consider the opportunity cost. Now, yes, I appreciate the fact that when ha- when Riot releases board games like Mech Versus Minions or the waste of time that is going to be Tellstones, they do so without involving any kind of, of crowdfunding or anything like that. They just sold it directly on their website. But there again, they bypassed brick and mortar, and they bypassed all those other things. and I- We didn't raise a human cry. And they make vast quantities of money on their supposedly free game. It's just the nature of the beast. I mean, either the product's worth the money or it's not. And I, I regret the fact that the shipping was onerous, but they changed that policy. I regret the fact that it's not available to Quebec, but then again, I can kind of understand why they're doing it. And look, a lot of people want HeroQuest. They've made their funding target. They're they're gonna they're gonna raise their million bucks. But again, a million bucks in the context of a Kickstarter is pretty successful, or in the context of a crowdfunding for a board game is pretty successful. For Hasbro,
1: it's chump change. One point six million so far. <laughs> <laughs> and that is my rant on Pulse from Hasbro. Fair enough. Quartermaster General,
2: the World War II version, the six player World War II game, which we both absolutely love and don't get to play in pandemic times. The second edition is getting its first expansion, Total War, which seems to be involving much of, if not all of the content of both Air Marshal and Alternate Histories, in that it involves the Chinese, the French, and Air Forces. And that is going to be coming out from Ares Games in the next couple of months. Quartermaster General, Total of War.
1: Nice. Great computer game called The Last of Us is now going to be made into a game by Simon. So first of all, it was a PS3 game, not a computer game. Secondly, it's one of those digitally type Beep Boop type games that the
2: those kids play. I've seen a lot of discussion online about whether the Last of Us board game could capture the sense of the video game. And I, for one, am very, very sympathetic to that because I have important questions about how the adaptation is going to capture my simultaneous disdain and complete indifference towards the entire cast? How is it going to capture my tremendous sense of boredom throughout the entirety of the so-called story? How is it going to capture my fatigue at an incredibly overdone setting not done particularly well? That it'll probably do pretty well, actually, come to think of it. And how is it going to overcome my incredible disbelief that the game is so well-received, despite the fact that it's, at best, the video game equivalent of Oscar bait, as said by Zero Punctuation's Yatsi Graha. I can
1: see you're as excited as I am.
2: The Last of Us was so thoroughly mediocre and so thoroughly acclaimed, it makes me wonder why it's not being put up by Stonemaier. And that is The Last of Us,
1: soon to be out by Simon Games. We
2: complained when reviewing a couple of GMT games over the past couple months, specifically Versailles 1919 and Imperial Struggle, that there were regrettable printing errors, in some cases even on the board and on player aids and on some cards. But GMT, great publisher that it is, is going to be releasing a mini update pack for three of their recent releases, specifically All Bridges Burning, Versailles 1919, and Imperial Struggle. So anybody that P500ed those games is going to be getting the bundle of all the corrected materials free of charge. I have to assume that everyone who got it on other retail channels uh, might have to give them a nominal fee, but I, for one, appreciate that they are making good on the recent round of misprints, especially since, I have to say, and I'm not defending this, in the universe of war games, typically people are made to live with a certain amount of errata. <laughs> so, we we don't we don't defend it, we absolutely pointed it out and criticized them for it, but I'm glad they're making good.
1: Mark, you've talked about Grand Austria Hotel before, not a huge fan, but... I've only played it once. I would like to try it again. And now they're going to get a super deluxe upgrade. October 22nd, Lookout Games is going to have their first Kickstarter. So I'm looking forward to it. Like it doesn't. From what I read, it does not sound like it's just a reprint. It sounds like they're going over the rules, changing things up, adding a bunch of new stuff. So I'm looking forward to checking it out. I want actual strudel. You want, oh, That'd be cool. I want it to
2: come with actual strudel. We could do that. Finally, for me, for sale by Stefan Dora, is one of my favorite fillers of all time. A fabulous auction game with whimsy and surprise and good quality decisions and very, very charming art. Despite the fact that it was originally published over two decades ago, it is getting an expansion. Which may or may not be compatible with the edition I have, but that's a me problem, not a market problem. <laughs> this is going to be at a third phase of the game. I'm not sure if the game wants a third phase, because the great thing about Crick Fillers is that they're... Um, What's the great thing about quick fillers, Walker? It's that they're... uh... Oh, it's that they're quick. Sorry, yes, thank you. I got confused from them. And I don't know if the third phase would ruin that, but who knows? Maybe it'll be very, very brief and add considerably to it. Uh, Just thinking about Quartermaster General, one of the virtues of Quartermaster General is that it's relatively quick, but the Prelude expansion definitely adds to the experience, even though it adds about 15 minutes to the front end of it. And For Sale is also going to be re-released in a new version with the expansion implicated directly, where you're not buying and selling property, you're buying and selling cars. It's going to be called For Sale Autorama, which every time I see it, I keep misreading it as For Sale Automa. Agreed. And honestly, I'm not much of a car guy, and so that that doesn't really do much for me. And even if I were, it's probably not going to have licensed cars. This isn't going to be like Gran Turismo, the card game, or anything of the sort. It's just honestly one of the things that I love about For Sale is just the charming depictions of given pieces of property, all of which involve an animal. And I was wondering, how are you going to have, are are all the cars going to have animals? Is it going to be like 1998 Honda Civic coupled with a rattlesnake? Is it going to be a 2004 Porsche Boxster with
1: a Labradoodle?
2: A Labradoodle. I I don't know. These are important questions. I'm curious to hear, and I would like to find out. But anyway, I'm happy that For Sale is getting attention, and it's one of those things that I think should be perennially in print, and I'm a huge fan of For Sale, and I'm very curious about this expansion. All right, Mark, talk to us of Dragonland well I haven't played it.
1: You've never played a Reiner Kenizy game called Dragonland.
2: I've never played the Reiner Kenizzy game called Dragonland. It's primarily designed for children. Was the report that I had when it was first released about fifteen years ago. And as a result, I didn't track down. Oh. So it's out again. At the time I didn't have to play with children. It's a it's avail- at the time I was happy.
1: Oh, there you go. Well, it's available now. Maybe should, we should look into it more. It's available now by the same people that do tiny epic stuff. Have now released Dragonland. It is now available. Yes, it's been slightly reworked.
2: Look, I'll happily try any Knitzia game at any given time, but I am going to be the first Knitzia fan to acknowledge that not everything he does is for me. That's Dragonland. You put me on the spot like that, Walker. Tell me about Dragonland. I have nothing to say about Dragonland. Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Ryder Knitzia game, I just assume.
1: Walker, you're going to make our listeners think that we're just making it up as we go along. Oh, we never would do that, Mark. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to our feature game of the week, which is Flotilla. Flotilla was designed by
2: J.B. Howell and Michael Mihalsik. It was put up by WizKids last year. This is very much part of WizKids' uh, operations with uh, Z-Man, Zev Schlesinger, at the helm of uh, game development in that they're putting out kind of interesting stuff, so I'd put it out in the same bucket as thing like, things like Empires, things like Sidereal Confluence, not in terms of gameplay, but in terms of let's try some interesting Eurogame stuff, because I think, you know, five, ten years ago, this is not the kind of thing that WizKids would have touched. So Michael Mahilsick uh, only has one other published game to his credit, Trial of the Temples. I don't really have any experience with that. However, it uh, I was surprised to learn that J.B. Howell's two other major published designs uh, we've both played... There's Reavers of Midgard, which we found aggressively uninteresting. And (laughs) in your case, very disappointing. In my case, I wasn't very surprised because the Midgard games don't really have much appeal for me. And also uh, Papillon, which we both found, you know, delightful and effervescent, very much like a butterfly. So (laughs) there you go. So naturally what these two uh, do is design a medium-heavy Euro kind of sort of economic game (laughs) with some stock elements added. And it about put into a post-apocalyptic setting. Well, naturally that's what you do, right? You start with Norse mythology, then you go to butterflies, and then it's post-apocalypse. That's the, the that's, that's the life cycle. It's the template. Yeah. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Flotilla?
1: Well, in Flotilla, you're just trying to figure out what kind of game you're going to play because it's one of those games where you get to decide sort of what you want to do. There's all sorts of things to do. You can buy, sell resources, you can you can worry about diving deep into the water and collecting resources or you can go immediately to building up the cities again and and living out your water weird water world dreams <laughs> these are all things that can happen in flotilla I that's the one part I really love about it is the fact that there's so many different ways you can play. I really disagree. Holy crap. Well, well I, have the, I have this point later on. Let's wait towards the end because okay. it's, it's my last point about, you know, different ways to win. I got different points at the bottom.
2: Well, let's talk about buying and selling resources because you're necessarily going to be doing that. There are four colors of resource. They're on a sort of supply-demand floating market thing. Every time you sell a resource, it gets half a buck cheaper. Every time you buy a resource, it gets half a buck more expensive. And nominally, you would hope that that would lead to some kind of interesting economic fluctuation. But let me just put all my cards on the table right away. No pun intended. Because I like Flotilla, it is one of those things that, in Michael Walker terms, I will play if it's put in front of me, but I would never choose to play it. And the reason why is because the central... I say gimmick, but I don't mean in a pejorative sense. The, 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 the key hook, the key clever twist, is that there are two phases to the game, but the phases aren't dictated by the game turn. It's dictated by player choice, and that second phase can be entered on your first turn, or it can be entered never. Or it could be entered anywhere in between. It's not It's not a binary choice. And the problem that I have is that in a game that has a, a running time of two hours or more, the fact that you're going to be interacting with that cool bit maybe once doesn't do enough for me. Because there's a lot of cool stuff in Flotilla. So why don't we go through some of the cool stuff that you really like, and I'll elaborate on, the, on, on these as they come up.
1: Well, here's some cool stuff that would either... Make a developer rub their hands together while drooling or uh have a heart attack. Because <laughs> there's so much in this game, Mark. We have... And I even, I, I couldn't believe how much I wrote here. I th- it just kept going and going. Yeah. We have a survivor track. We have a sonar track. We have four tracks for guild bonuses. And on these tracks, uh, it's the main way to get new cards, end game victory points. You get money and, and resources. And then there's the toxicity tracker, the hub board that has four guild trackers on it, eight stacks of victory point tokens, four different types of dice, an entire artifact system. And the tiling. As, second, I was going to say. <laughs> oh, sorry, you were just pausing for breath. As pausing that all of all of those things are but subsystems and have nothing to do what with what you're doing on the main board. Well, that, that's, that's not that's, true. Well, within reason,
2: they're they're, they're a little more interesting. The different kinds of dice interact with the different kinds of tiles true. you have. Yeah,
1: so you you brought out the one thing. <laughs>
2: The different types of resources interact with the different types of tiles you have. The the victory point tiles that you purchase have something to do with the tiles you have. It's true. But I just mean that they are
0: all <laughs>
1: subsystems that... that- are separate from the main board.
2: Because, no, I, I would... Look, a game like this, if it were less tightly held together, I would be first, first to criticize. This is often our criticism of Vital Asserta games. This is often our criticism of games that want to be as good as, say, Splatter games or as Mind Clash games, but don't quite fit together the right way. There's a lot of stuff here, and I agree with you entirely. A lot of it could be pared down, I could have happily done away with, you know, the sonar track and the survivor track and a couple of other things. And the artifacts
1: in general. I have this, like, artifacts. Just, you know, we just take them right out of the game, yeah. really.
2: Yeah, there's a number of things I would happily excise, but none of it is particularly egregious in the sense that, oh, no, no, there's that limit that you forgot about, that you can't do that thing because there's this other limit. Or, oh, there's this subsystem that you literally don't have the mental bandwidth to engage with, but somebody else is making it the entirety of their gameplay and getting a bazillionty points out of it. And the point scoring is relatively relatively focused. You're buying victory point tiles and you're laying tiles in the second half of the game, that second half being optional. And so that, I think, rescues it from being quite the level of developer's nightmare that a lot of other games can descend into.
1: It's true. All right, let's talk about the different strategies that there could be. Like I said, we talked about different ways to win. There's the dials that you're going to be spinning around, getting majority in the different guilds which is a huge different way, you know, you can emphasize like that, like I did not whatsoever. I think I believe I came in second in that game, so I didn't do terribly, but I didn't care about any of those dials. There's the victory point chits, which other people uh, leaned heavily into, and I only, you know, got one. So that's another different avenue you can uh, emphasize on. There's the building, building out your flotilla, is which I did emphasize on. And then there's the buying and selling of, of resources, which I'm not 100% sure is a viable strategy, but I'm willing to give it a try. Because I think that is uh, one of the strategies of, of keeping sink side the whole time. Wow, this is really interesting. Our experiences of the game
2: appear to be largely different because in my estimation, it is a plus that the victory conditions are relatively constrained. All those other things that you're talking about, buying and selling resources, artifacts racing up the guild tracks, uh, to me, that's a sideshow. That's a that's a small minority of points. They were points. definitely
1: to you and I they were a sideshow, but the other two, they didn't... Uh...
2: I, I, I disagree. If you dominate, if you completely dominate the four guild tracks, and let's say you dominate resource, resource selling, that's going to be 40 points from the guild tracks, and I don't know, every time you do transactions, assuming you're drowning in money and you completely are a monster there, maybe, maybe you'll get another 30 to 40 out of that. The victory point pool, which determines when the game ends, is 100 points per player. So if you're not going to crack 100 points, you're not going to win. Flat. So the mere fact that the guild tracks can top out at 40 if you completely dominate them uncontested, I think, demonstrates the extent to which it's a sideshow. The way you get tremendous points is by laying tiles. We were getting 40 points by laying a single tile near the end of the game, which is is not a display of our great genius. I no. just think it goes to show the relative importance of these various things. Similarly, the victory point tiles that you purchase can also easily be worth 30 to 40 points in a single stroke. So I I, I disagree that this is some sort of wide-open thing a la Feast for Odin, for example, where it's like, look, I can explore this subsystem and make this my route to victory or this other thing my route to victory. No, no, no. You buy the victory point tiles or and or you lay tiles in the second half. Everything else is just a sideshow.
1: Sure, I'd like to try it, though. I'd like to... You know, give it a whirl, like leading have more heavily on the victory point conditions. Like they, so a lot of people have said that it is possible to remain sink side. And if you remain sink side, you can't place any of these tiles. I believe that, but then you have to buy a lot of the victory point tiles and, and, and dominate and you, that. And you have to get them earlier because a lot of people are staying sink side as well. So they're also buying for those, those victory point tiles as well at the beginning, right? So it's a, like sort of a, they, they were level. So if you get them first, you get more victory points. There's eight. For a four player game, you know, set per player. Well, here's the thing. So there's
2: SyncSide and SkySide. SyncSide is the first, is where you start the game and you can go SkySide if you want. The part that's really interesting to me, and in some games, this has persisted for as many as, say, three or four turns is the economic factors that exist when some players are going heavily in Sinkside and some players are going heavily Skyside is really, really cool. Because what the Skysiders are doing indirectly affect how lucrative the things for the Sinksiders are doing. The problem is, as I say, that's a minority of the gameplay. And when everybody is in the same system, the market becomes boring. Because, for example, when everyone is sync-side, all you're doing with resources is selling them. There's no reason to buy resources when you're sink side, except of course to prepare for when you need them
1: when you're going sky side. So overwhelmingly you're selling them. True, sure, that's why I was, that's one of my benef- that's one of the, what I have under if you flip right at the beginning, you're going to be able to sure. buy resources and that's also the flip side when you're if you remain in the sink side, uh, there's going to be certain resources that are maxed out the whole time. Yes. So, so you could sell, you know, Uh, concentrate on on getting those and selling those for a high price while buying other ones and topping out and getting victory points. I'm wondering if that is a viable...
2: Well, and those sessions where there's this maximum degree of asymmetry of player position, where you spend as much much of the game as possible with some people sky-side and some people sink-side, those are definitely the sessions that I prefer because you get these interesting market tensions. The problem is, again... The massive influx of points that can be had cheaply by laying down these tiles when you're Skyside, which I have a number of problems with that. Uh, one of them is that it's a function of a weird stock element whereby various color of tile are going to be worth more points than others. And the way in which those become more valuable is kind of fluky. There's this strange timing element. There's this dial that you go around where the last step of the dial allows you to influence the price of one of the colors of tile. But who takes that last step is sometimes beyond your control. You might be angling for it, but then someone gets that last step sooner, and then you're like, okay, well, now I have to wait for someone else to advance it four more times before I can do it.
1: There's also a way with the
2: dice that you can get as
1: well. If you're sky side and you roll a certain combination on the dice, it lets you manipulate that dial.
2: That is true. And you would absolutely want to do that. But then that dovetails with my second problem. Frequently what you're doing then is just benefiting off the hard work that somebody else did. So, for example, in our last session, you ran up the value of red... And I did next to nothing about it. And then when I went SkySide, I'm like, okay, well, red's worth a lot. I'll just build a whole bunch of red. And so I profited off of your good work. The stock element there is not reactive. It doesn't float neatly. It just goes in one direction with great difficulty. And so there's no ability for it to be dynamic in any real sense. And it, it lends to a sense of applauding inevitability of those tiling. And let me just issue one more complaint about the tile laying. We've played several times. We've played with people who've played for the first time. We've played with people who've played several times. Every time we play, when it comes time to play Skyside tiles, which, again, can be worth i I'm not saying it's the dominant strategy. I'm saying it's worth a lot of points. We always forget how it works. And we always be like, wait, what? That Does that Does that count towards the... Okay, so it's six times seven? Oh, no, wait, it's five times seven. Uh, okay, so this one's 35. Now this one is six times seven. Uh, and every time, every time. And that's not ideal.
1: No, it is a little fiddly. That's the only fiddly bit I have. Other than moving all these other dials and, and levers, uh, the scoring for the tiles is a little fiddly.
2: I want to praise the card system, though, because we haven't talked about the fi- the, the primary action selection mechanism exactly. of the game. It is a little bit of deck building. I find it a
1: little bit like Concordia. It's very much like Concordia. It's almost exactly like Concordia. It's because you have to uh, figure out when you want to pick up your deck, and you get a bunch of money when you do so, as in, you know, the number of cards that you pick up. And it also has the same sort of card in Concordia, where it gets to copy someone else's face-up card, which is identical. And it can be very powerful if you wait for someone to play a very powerful card. You know, if they you've seen that they've upgraded, you can sort of hang on to that and wait for them to play the better card, so you can copy that. So that's how it Definitely feels like Concordia.
2: One of the things that I didn't like about Concordia was how bland and generic the cards felt. All the cards were just very subtle variations on your starting cards, or indeed exact copies of your starting cards. Here in Flotilla... The cards are really cool. They do some interesting stuff. Now, it's not earth-shattering. It's not like some sort of huge take-that-earthquake thing. But they have interesting parameters, and when you get a new card, you're excited about what it can do. And it further interests the rest of the table. A little bit more player interaction, a little bit more engagement. Someone plays a cool card, and you're like, oh, no, no, I want to copy that one. I'd better copy it now while it's out. And so it showed me what Concordia could have done with its card system, because I, I think you're actually still underselling the the, the, the comparisons. It's exactly like Concordia's <laughs> card system,
1: 100%. Except, like, like I said, like, like you said, every card is different, and not only in the front, even the back, because once you've gone Skyside, like we've talked about, you flip over your deck, and now all your cards do com- not completely different, but slightly different actions, but they're all different. It's amazing, and the art is really nice, too.
2: And again, the, the difference in the economy, how it feels to impl- interact with the economy, sky side versus sink side is very, very different. When you are sink side, you have a great deal of difficulty getting money, but placing tiles is no problem. Whereas when you're SkySide, money just rains from well from the sky. It's just money is not an issue. You're dealing in vast sums almost trivially. It's a bit of a constraint, but not so much. But tiles are now the, the the crucial resource. Getting tiles is more difficult. And honestly, here's the thing: I'm no I'm no game developer. If theoretically you could design a game that was very very much like Flotilla maybe shave off one or two of the subsystems, just to make things a little bit more straightforward and a little bit quicker. Because I think it's a little bit longer than it wants to be, you know, two to two and a half hours if you're going to be maximum player count. That's a little bit longer than I want. If it were a situation, and I realize this is another Mac Gertz game, like Navigador, where you could swap back and forth between the different economic modalities, if you could go back and forth from sink side to sky side, or something roughly equivalent to that, then I think you'd have a game that I could really, really love. Because those dynamics make it a little costly, maybe. Make it difficult, but so you could be reactive to what was going on. And you could have that interesting dynamic persist for more of the game, rather than just this weird focal point for some people and not others, and only once over the course of the game. Because in a game like Navigador, where there's this floating market system where uh, where sometimes you want to be processing goods and sometimes you want to be selling goods, you do have this dynamism and this interaction, this opportunity cost of knowing when to take advantage of different market forces. Honestly, when I play Flotilla, very often I look at the market dynamics as being very interesting. I just can't interact with them because I just have this one time to throw a switch and never again. And I I wish it capitalized more on that.
1: There are some parts I wish were better as well, like you said, but there's so much other going on if it if, if, you know, that was something that could go up and down freely, that'd be yet another... Well, again, that's why you shave off some of the subsystems. Yeah, like, I haven't even talked about those outposts, right? Right. <laughs> what is the point? Of, it's, you know, you buy an outpost and put it on the map, so you get a victory condition, and then that that's all they do.
2: Yeah. It, and... Honestly, it's, it's not that these other, again, not that these other bits are problematic or obnoxious. No, yeah, they,
1: and it's it's not as though they go outside of the rules. It just lets you do yet another thing, that another rule that you do. It's just another right. way to cycle these actions. It's
2: fine. Around. It's just unnecessary. And right. again, if you could have it focus more to its strengths, I'd be more in favor.
1: Final scoring's not painful. It's pretty well straightforward. It's not this huge point grab at the end. Again, because they're not particularly relevant or consequential, the end game scoring. You have to have at least three players, which is kind of a pain. Well, especially in these times, yeah. You can't play a two-player, but a two-player is coming. It's called Seastead. I took a look at it today. It looks very much like Flotilla. It's all in the same world. It's going to have a bunch of different stuff. Having the boats out on the map, Mark, carrying your little barrels of resources, I think looks amazing. The fact that all the boats are different. You stack your little barrels on. It's floating very nice. <laughs> I just have game length down here. You already addressed that. You thought it was too long. I was I'm up in the air about it. I'm not quite sure. I just enjoy playing it so much that I don't really care how long it is. That's reasonable. I also have written down here that there's an FAQ. So if you ever do pick it up, definitely. Well, there, well there's the errata. That's what I'm saying. In within the FAQ, there's an errata. Where you actually have to change uh, two of the chits and one of the cards, both sides of it. And they're pretty substantial changes. So definitely check out the FAQ if you ever go to play it. So, in conclusion, I love Flotilla. It is a game I'm going to keep. It'll stay in my collection as far as for a long time to come, I will play it and even suggest it. Flotilla,
2: I think, is a very interesting game. I think it has the seed of a very good game inside it, and as it is, I think it is enjoyable, but shy of higher quality, largely by virtue of the fact that it doesn't play to its strengths, and those interesting market forces are often outside your control and or only exist for a very small subset of the game.
1: I'm looking forward to employing new strategies and trying to see if some of these things are actually viable. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games.
2: If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justroll at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at TheGamesYouLike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. Or you can check out the Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope to see you again soon, and long live Kana Tanaka.
1: And if you like this show, tell
2: a friend.